Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Father Thames by Walter Higgins. This book explores the Thames River, a London icon that is known around the world. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Thank you to Robin, who reached out through the website. I'm glad to hear the podcast is helping you, your partner and your dog, get the well-needed sleep that you deserve. Nicole, thank you for also reaching out to me through the website. I'm so grateful that you have recommended me to your friends and that you continue to listen to the podcast. Thank you also to Subi for your lovely message on Instagram. Hearing that you struggle to finish the episode is a lovely compliment. For all other listeners out there who find the podcast beneficial, I have a favour to ask you. Please leave a review and comment in iTunes, or leave a show rating in Spotify. If you would like, you can also say hello at boyyoutosleep.com where you can become a Patreon and support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boyyoutosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the ratings. Father Thames by Walter Higgins England is not a country of great rivers. No mighty Nile winds lazily across desert and fertile plains in its three and a half thousand miles course to sea. No rushing Pramaputra plunges headlong down its slopes, falling two or three miles as it crosses half a continent, from icy mountain tops to tropical seaboard. In comparison with such as these, England's biggest rivers are but the tiniest, trickling streams. Yet for all that, our little waterways have always meant much to the land. Tyne, Severn, Humber, Trent, Thames, Mercy. All these with many smaller but no less well-known streams have played their part in the making of England's history. All these have had much to do with the building up of her commercial prosperity. One only of these rivers we shall consider in this book, and that is old Father Thames, as it was and as it is, and what it has meant to England during 2,000 years. In our consideration... We shall divide the river roughly into three quite natural divisions. 
First, the section up to the lowest bridge. Second, the part just above. The part which gave the river its chief port and city. Third, the upper river. However, before we consider these three parts in detail, there is one question which we might well ponder for a little while, a question which probably has never occurred to more than a few of us, and that is this. Why was there ever a River Thames at all? To answer it, we must go back, far, far back into the dim past. As you know, this world of ours is millions of years old, and like most ancient things, it has seen changes, tremendous changes. Its surface has altered from time to time in amazing fashion. Whole mountain ranges have disappeared from sight, and valleys have been raised to make fresh islands. The bed of the ocean has suddenly or slowly been thrust up, yielding entirely new continents, while vast areas of land have sunk deep enough to allow the water to flow in and create new seas. All of this we know by the study of the rocks and the fossil remains buried in them, that is, by the science of geology. Now, among many other strange things, geology teaches us that our own islands were at one time joined to the mainland of Europe. In those days, there was no English Channel, no North Sea, and no Irish Sea. Instead, there was a great piece of land stretching from Denmark and Norway, right across to spots miles out beyond the western limits of Ireland and the northern limits of Scotland. This land, which you will best understand by looking carefully at the map, was crossed by several rivers, the largest of them one which flowed almost due north, right across what is now the North Sea. This river, as you will see from the map, was chiefly produced by glaciers of the Alps, and in its early stages took practically the same course as the River Rhine of these days. As it flowed out across the Dogger district, where now is the famous Dogger Bank of our North Sea fishermen, it was joined by a number of tributary rivers which flow down eastwards from what we might call the backbone of England. The range of mountains and hills which pass down through the centre of our islands. One of these tributaries was a river which in its early stages flowed along what is now our own Thames Valley. In those days, everything was on a much grander scale, and this river, though only a small tributary of the great main continental river, was a far wider and deeper stream than the Thames which we know. Here and there, along the present-day river valley, we can still see in the contours of the land 
and in the various rocks evidences of the time when this biggest stream was flowing. Thus things were when there came the great surface change which enabled the water to flow across wide tracts of land and so form the British Islands, standing out separately from the mainland of Europe. All that, of course, happened long ago, many thousands of years before the earliest days mentioned in our history books, at a time about which we know nothing at all, save what we can read in that wonderful book of nature, whose pages are the rocks and stones of the earth's surface. By the study of these rocks and the fossil remains in them, we can learn just a few things about the life of those days, the strange kinds of trees which covered the earth from sea to sea, the weird monsters which roamed in the forests and over the hills. Of man, we can learn very little. We can get some rough idea when he first appeared in Britain, and we can tell by the remains preserved in caves, etc., in some small degree what sort of life he lived. But that is all. The picture of England in those days is a very dim one. How and when the prehistoric man of these islands grew to some sort of civilization, we cannot say. When first he learned to till the soil and grow his crops, to weave rough clothes for himself, to domesticate certain animals to carry his goods, to make roads along which these animals might travel, to barter his goods with strangers. All these are mysteries which we shall probably never solve. Just this much we can say. Prehistoric man probably came to a simple form of civilization a good deal earlier than is commonly supposed. As a rule, our history books start with the year of Caesar's coming, 55 BC, and treat everything before that date as belonging to absolute savagery. But there are many evidences which go to show that the Britons of that time were to some considerable extent a civilized people who traded pretty extensively with Gaul and who knew how to make roads and embankments and perhaps even bridges. As early man grew to be civilized, as he learned to drain the flooded lands by the side of the stream and turn them from desolate fens and marshes to smiling, productive fields, and as he learned slowly how to get from the hillsides and the plain the full value of his labor, so he realized more and more the possibilities of the great river valley. The Thames flows in what may be regarded as an excellent example of a river basin, a large area no less than 6,000 square miles, is enclosed on practically all sides by ranges of hills, 
generally chalk hills, which slope down gently into its central plain, and across this area, from Gloucester to the North Sea, for more than 200 miles the river winds slowly seawards, joined here and there by tributaries, which add their share to the stream as they come down from the encompassing heights. On the extreme west of the basin lie the Cotswold Hills of Gloucestershire. Here the Thames is born, and the rain which falls on the hilltops makes it steadily into the soil and is retained there. Down and down it sinks through the porous limestone and chalk, till eventually it reaches a layer of impenetrable material, clay, slate or stone, through which it can no longer pursue its downward course. Its only way now is along the upper surface of the stratum of impermeable material. Thus it comes in time to the places on the hillsides where the stratum touches the open air, and there it gushes forth in the form of springs, which in turn become tiny streams, some falling westwards down the steep Severn Valley, others running eastwards down the gentler declivity. At their northern end, the Cotswolds sweep round to join Edge Hill, and then the hill wall crosses the uplands of that rolling country which we call the Central Tableland, and so comes to the long stretch of the East Anglian Heights, passing almost continuously eastward through Hertfordshire and North Essex to Suffolk. On the south side, the ring of hills sweeps round by way of the Marlborough Downs, and so comes to the long scarp of the North Downs, which make their way eastwards to the Kentish coast. Within the limits of this ring of hills, the valley lies, not perfectly flat like an alluvial plain, but gently, very gently, undulating, seldom rising more than two or three hundred feet above sea level, save where the great ridge of chalk the Chilton Marlborough Range straddles right across the basin at Goring. Standing on one of the little eminences of the valley, we can survey the scene before us. We can watch the river for many miles winding its way seawards and note in all directions the same fertile flourishing countryside with its meadows where the soft-eyed cattle browse on the rich grass. Its warm, brown ploughlands, its rich, golden fields of wheat, oats and barley, its pretty orchids and farm close at hand, its nestling, tidy villages, its little pointed church steeples dotted everywhere. We can see in the distance, maybe, one or two compact little towns, for towns always spring up on wide, well-farmed plains, since the farmers must have proper markets to which to send their supplies of eggs 
butter, cheese, and milk, and proper mills where their grain may be ground into flour. It is a pleasant, satisfying prospect, and one which suggests industrious, thrifty farmers reaping the rich reward of their unsparing labours, and it is an interesting prospect too. For this same prosperous countryside, very little altered during half a dozen centuries, has done much to establish and maintain the position of the Thames as the great river of England. The usefulness of a river to its country depends on several things. In the first place, it must be able to carry goods, to act as a convenient highway along which the traffic can descend through the valley towards the busy places near the mouth. That is to say, it must be navigable to barges and small boats throughout a considerable portion of its length. In the second place, there must be the goods to carry, that is to say, the river must pass through a countryside which can produce in great quantity things which are needed. In the third place, the chief port of the river, which must lie in such a position that it is within comparatively easy distance of good foreign markets. Now let us see how these three conditions apply to the River Thames. Firstly, with regards to the goods themselves, if we take our map of England and lay a pencil across it from Bristol to the Wash, we shall be marking off what has been through the greater part of English history, the boundary of the wealthy portion of Britain. For only in modern times, since the development of the iron and coal fields, and the discovery that the damp climate of the north was exactly suited to the manufacture of textiles, has the great industrial north of England come into being. England in the Middle Ages, and on till a century or more ago, was an agricultural country. Its wealth lay very largely in what it grew and what it reared and the South provided the most suitable countryside for this sort of production. The consequence was that the Thames flowed right down through the centre of wealthy England. All round it were the chalk ranges on which throve the great herds of long-fleeced sheep that provided the wonderful wool for which England was famous and which was in many respects the main source of their prosperity. In between the hills were the cornfields and the orchards, and dotted all down the course at convenient points were thriving towns, each of which could, as it were, drain off the produce of the area behind it, and so act as a collecting and forwarding station for the traffic of the main stream. The river too was quite capable of dealing with the great output, 
for it was navigable for barges and small boats as far as Letchdale, a matter of 150 miles from the mouth, and its tributaries were in most cases capable of bearing traffic for quite a few miles into the right and left interior. Moreover, its current at ordinary times was neither too swift nor too sluggish, so that, with the wealth produced by the land and the means of transport provided by the river, the only things needed to make the Thames one of Europe's foremost rivers were the markets. Here again, the Thames was fortunate in its situation, for its mouth stood in an advantageous position facing the most important harbours of Normandy, Flanders, Holland and Germany, all within comparatively easy distance and all of them ready to take our incomparable wool and our excellent corn in exchange for the things they could bring us. Moreover, the tides served in such a way that the double tides of the Channel and the North Sea made London the most easily reached port of all for ships coming from the south. Thus, then, favoured as it was by its natural situation and by its character, the Thames became by far the most important highway in our land and this it remained for several centuries, until the coming of the railways, in fact. Now the river above London counts for very little in our system of communications. Like all other English waterways, canals and rivers alike, it has given place to the Iron Road. Notwithstanding the fact that goods can be carried by water at a mere fraction of the cost of railway transport. But our merchants do not seem to realise this, and so in this matter we find ourselves a long way behind our neighbours on the continent. From its mouth inwards to the London Bridge, the Thames is not the Thames, for like many other important commercial stream, it takes its name from the port to which the seamen make their way, and it becomes to the most of those who use it, London River. Now where does London River begin at the seaward side? At the Nore. The seaward limit of the Port of London Authority is somewhat to the east of the Nore Light, and consists of an imaginary line stretching from a point at the mouth of Havengore Creek, nearly four miles northeast of the Shubrinus, on the Essex coast, to Warden Point on the Kent coast, eight miles or so from Sheerness, and this we may regard quite properly as the beginning of the river. The opening here is about ten miles wide, but narrows between Shubrinus and Sheerness, where, for most practical purposes, the river commences to about six miles. 
right here at the mouth, the river receives its last and most important tributary, the Medway. For some miles up, the estuary and the lower reaches the character of the river, in such that it is difficult to imagine anything less interesting, less impressive, less suggestive of what the river approach to the greatest city in the world should be, for there is nothing but flat land on all sides, so flat that were not the great sea wall in position, the whole countryside would soon revert to its original condition of March and Fenland. Were we unfamiliar with the nature of the landscape, a glance at the map would convince us at once, for in continuous stretch from Sheerness and the Medway, we find on the Kentish bank, Grain Marsh, the Isle of Grain, St Mary's Marshes, Halslow Marshes, Cooling Marshes, Cliff Marshes, and so on. Nor is the Essex bank any better once we have left behind the slightly higher ground on which stand Southend, Westcliff, and Lee for the low, flat Canvey Island is succeeded by the mucky and east Tilbury Marshes. The river wall, extending right away from the mouth to London on the Essex side, is a wonderful piece of engineering. Man's continuously successful effort against the persistence of nature a feature strongly reminiscent of the lowlands on the other side of the narrow seas. Who first made this, no one knows. Probably in many places it is not younger than Roman times, and there are certain things about it which tend to show an even earlier origin. Indeed, so long ago was it made that the mouth and lower parts of the river must have presented to the various invaders through the centuries very much the same appearance as they present to anyone entering the Thames today. The Danes in their long ships, prowling round the Essex and Thanique coasts, in search of a way into the fair land, probably saw just these same dreary flats on each hand, save that when they sailed unhindered up the river, they caught in places the glint of waters beyond the less carefully attended embankment. The foreign merchants of the Middle Ages, the men of Genoa and Florence, of Flanders and the Hanseatic towns, making their way upstream with an easterly wind and a flowing tide, the Elizabethan venturers coming back with their precious cargoes from long and perilous voyages, the Dutch sweeping defiantly into the estuary in the degenerate days of Charles II. All these must have beheld a spectacle almost identical with that which greets our 20th century travellers returning from the East. Perhaps... At first sight, one of the most striking things in all this stretch of the river is the absence of ancient fortifications. 
True, we have those at Sheerness, but they were made for the guarding of the dockyard and of the approach to the important military centre at Chatham, which lies a few miles up the River Medway. Surely this great opening into England, the gateway to London, this key to the entire situation, should have had frowning castles on each shore to call a halt to any venturesome invading force. Thus we think at once with our 20th century conception of warfare, forgetting that the cannon of early days could never have served to throw a projectile more than a mere fraction of the distance across the stream. Not till we pass up the lower hope and the Gravesend reaches and come to Tilbury and Gravesend, facing each other on the two banks, do we reach anything like a gateway. Then we find Tilbury Fort on the Essex shore, holding the way upstream. Here at the ferry, between the two towns, the river narrows to less than a mile in width, Consequently, the artillery of ancient days might have been used with something like effectiveness. From Gravesend westwards, the country still lies very low on each bank, but the monotony is not quite so continuous, for here and there, first at one side and then at the other, there rise from the widespread flats little eminences, and on these small towns generally flourish. At North Fleet and Greenhithe, for instance, where the chalk crops out, and the river flows up against cliffs from 100 to 150 feet high, there is by contrast quite a romantic air about the place, and the same may be said of the little town of Perfleet, which lies four miles up the straight stretch of Long Reach, its wooded chalk bluffs with their white quarries very prominent in the vast plain. But for the most part, it is marshes, marshes all the way, particularly on the Essex shore, marshes where are concocted those poisonously unpleasant mixtures known as London specials, the thick fogs which do so much to make the river, and the port as well, a particularly unpleasant place at certain times in winter, when a London special is about, that variety which East Enders refer to as the pea soup variety, the thick, yellow, smoke-laden mist obscures everything, effectively putting an end to all business for the time being. Passing Erith on the Kent coast, and Dagnum and Barking on the Essex, we come to the point where London really begins on its eastward side. From now onwards, on each bank, there is one long, winding line of commercial buildings, backed in each case by a vast and densely populated area. On the southern shore come Plumstead and Woolwich, to be succeeded in continuity by Greenwich, Deptford, Rotherhithe, and Bermondsey, 
while on the north side coming in unbroken succession, North Woolwich, Canning Town, and Silverton. In all the 11 miles or so from Barking Creek to London Bridge, there is nothing to see but shipping and the things appertaining thereto. Great cargo boats moving majestically up or down the stream. Little tugs fussing and snorting their way across the waters. Wind jammers of all sorts and sizes dropping down lazily on the tide. Small coastal steamers, ugly colliers, dredges, business-like customs, motor boats and river police launches, vast numbers of barges, some moving beautifully under their own canvas, some being towed along in bunches, others making their way painfully along, propelled slowly by their long sweeps. There is nothing to hear but the noises of shipping, the shrill cry of the siren, the harsh rattling of the donkey engines, the strident shouts of the seamen and the lightermen. Everything is marine, for this is the port of London. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the story about the River Thames, London, and the surrounding cities. Wherever you are, I hope you're getting the rest that you need, and I'm also hoping that this story has helped you get slowly tired so that you're ready to sleep. In the meantime, I'll be bringing out a new episode so that you can get the rest that you need. Until then, good night.